On this edition, urban hiking, hiking on Mars, snorkels, and gear reviews. Welcome to the Almost There Adventure Podcast. Severia Tilden, Jeff Hester, and Jason Fitzpatrick. Hello, everyone. I am really excited today to be bringing in the executive director of the American Hiking Society. The American Hiking Society is a national organization that advocates for trail use and access to trails all across the nation. And I'm actually on the board of directors for the American Hiking Society and support them. And we are really excited to have the executive director here today. And Kate, I'm going to let you introduce yourself. Hey, I'm Kate Van Wass. I use she, her pronouns, and I am executive director at American Hiking. Yay! And what, so um, American Hiking Society has a big national event that takes place every year, uh, National Trails Day. Would you like to tell us a little bit more about it? And this year it's going to be a little bit different based on the times that we are living in. This year will be a little different. So um, like Severia said, we are primarily an advocacy, a national advocacy organization. We engage the kind of million strong hiking community across the country in advocacy. So we like to say we're focused on the hiking community and trails is one piece of that because obviously we hikers need trails, but uh, we like to call ourselves a hiking community organization uh, more than a trail organization. We started National Trails Day Oh gosh, I've only been at AHS for like three years, so you'll have to forgive my knowledge of history, but 20 some years ago, um, I think REI was in on the start, um, maybe some other partners. Um, And for a long time, National Trails Day was about just kind of getting out and celebrating hiking, having a lot of events all across the country. And for a while, AHS was kind of measuring um, progress or success of National Trails Day by the number of events and number of people out there. And in some ways, that was really great because um, it was raising more awareness for hiking itself and how great hiking is and and for, you know, the fact that a lot of our trails need love and maintenance. Um, But we really wanted over the past couple of years to give National Trails Day even more meaning so that for folks um, who are celebrating it, to them, it evokes kind of a spirit of trail stewardship, of advocacy around public lands and advocacy around equity and inclusion in the outdoors. In the same way that like when you celebrate Earth Day, it makes you stop and think, how am I doing on my plastic usage? And, you know, how am I doing around, uh, around you know, my water usage at home and whatever? Like you immediately kind of stop and think about what your environmental footprint is and your carbon footprint. And so we want National Trails Day to really do the same thing for folks. So uh, two years ago, uh, we started doing these national pledges. And that was the stewardship piece of this, kind of building a stewardship movement. So the first year, this was in 2018, we did a pledge where we asked people across the country to pledge that we are going to clean up, maintain, or otherwise kind of fix up um, 2,802 miles of trail, because that's the distance across the U.S., And we reached something like, don't quote me on the exact number, but something like 4,500 miles or something just kind of blew that out of the water. And we're like, okay, cool, this is working. Um, And we also did advocacy activations where we gave gave out postcards, save the LWCF, the Land and Water Conservation Fund, 
at all of these events. And there are, you know, 1,200 events across the country with 100,000 or more people participating. So it's really big. Um, and got people to sign these postcards. And then they just sent them back to us. And we hand delivered them at a rally for the LWCF on the Hill and gave them directly to the right people at the rally. Um, and that made a big difference, actually, in, in getting the LWCF permanently authorized, finally. In 2019, then last year, we did, um, the pledge was around setting the world record for the most number of people out improving trails in a day. And we reached like over 41,000 people doing that in one day, which is really cool. So we were super excited for 2020 because 2020, we were like, we're going to do our big drive is going to be around vote public lands because that's our big voter education campaign this year. And we're going to do voter registration drives at National Trails Day events. We're like, this is going to be awesome. Yeah. And then, you know, we all know what happened. Um, global pandemic. So we decided, OK, you know what? Yeah, we can't have in-person events. but actually. Um, one of the, I don't want to say silver linings because a global pandemic is a horrible thing, but one of the things that is kind of positive that we noticed is that more and more people now are realizing, now that we've all been kind of self-quarantined and social isolating, how important just getting outside for a little bit every day is to our mental and physical health, especially when we're stuck inside. And those of us that recreated outside all the time and go hiking all the time, like we knew that already. <laughs> Um, and so we knew we had to go outside lest we get stir crazy, but there are a lot of folks that never spent much time outdoors that are discovering this for the first time. And we're like, this is great because this means we can actually bring more people into the movement to help protect public lands, steward our trails and fight for equity and inclusion for all in the outdoors. And related to all of that is the fact that you know, those of us who were realizing this in neighborhoods where we felt safe to get outside and where there's natural space to get outside, I hope are also realizing, oh gosh, not everybody has that. Like imagine being, you know, self-quarantine and socially isolating, potentially having lost your job and everything and still not having that outlet to get outside because there's not a nice and safe natural space for you to do it. So what we decided then for National Trails Day is, okay, Let's make this a day where we are all, where we pledge to be a public lands protector. So that's our pledge. Be a public lands protector. When you sign that pledge, you're saying, I'm going to take at least one action in 2020 that's going to help protect public lands and improve equity and inclusion and, and access to natural space for everyone. And then we'll give people really easy actions they can take for even, you know, from home in quarantine, and then also things you can do once we're slowly allowed to kind of get back outside again in a safe way and, and you know, do some stewardship on the trails. Uh, we'll give you actions you can take then. So that's how National Trails Day evolved. And I think, um, I think it's going to be great this year because I think it really has the potential to get so many more people involved as so many more lovers of the outdoors are kind of appearing. Yeah, Kate, uh, this is Jeff. We, uh, I have a Facebook group for Southern California hikers. And we've grown 43% in the last 60 days. Um, we've got over 31,000 members in that group. 
And uh, so clearly, you know, what you were saying is spot on. I mean, people are realizing how important it is to you know, have a little dose of the outdoors in their lives. And it's, it's good for the soul. It's good for the body. It's good for the spirit. And um, so I think you're right. I think there's a great opportunity here. What are, what are some examples of some of the actions that you're asking people to take or that they can take even while we can't maybe get out on the trails? Um, I'll give you some example of those. And also just to kind of emphasize the potential impact. So last year, National Trails Day reached 19 million people on social media. So the potential impact is really huge, especially as, you know, as we've been saying, as more and more people are paying attention to these issues. So um, what we, what we're at, what we're, the potential actions that we are giving to people, uh, the kind of menu that you can choose from, uh, includes things like answering one of our calls to action. So a call to action in the advocacy world means we tell you, we put it out on social media and on our website, et cetera. Hey, we really need to get the Outdoors for All and the Transit to Trails Act passed in Congress because both of those are going to improve um, equity and inclusion in the outdoors and improve people's access to outdoor spaces. So what we do is we put out that call to action. We say, hey, we need to get these signed. Send in a message to your members of Congress. And so then when they go to our website, it's really easy because you just enter your name, you enter your address so we know who your rep is. And there's already a message pre-filled out that you can either just press send and it will automatically go to your correct representative and senators, or you can personalize it if you want and then press go and it'll automatically send to them. So we make it really easy to contact those folks. We make it really easy to tell people, you know, these are the, these are the issues happening in Congress right now that are going to be the most important um, and that you can act on right now. Uh, we'll also um, send people over to our vote public lands page. So that's a, that's a whole, it's, it's really awesome. It's a voter education campaign that tells people all about the issues around public lands and around um, equity in the outdoors and what's kind of potentially could move through Congress now, what could be really important during the election. Um, and it gives people, you know, really easy to read um, kind of, you know, one or two pagers that are really easy to digest and, and really easy um, websites to read about, okay, Here's what public lands really means and why it's important. Here's what the Outdoors for All Act is and why it's important. Uh, you can also find out from that page if you're registered to vote. You can also uh, find out uh, where a town hall is happening with, uh, with your candidates in your area. Um, so things like that make it really easy for people to educate themselves around the election. And then we'll have on there um, a scorecard that's kind of pre-made, but that you can fill out to score your candidates against all of these different issues and see who you want to vote for. Obviously, we don't tell people who to vote for. We're a 501c3. We can't do that. Um, uh, and we were one of, we were actually the only organization in the outdoor industry that sent a candidate questionnaire to all of the presidential candidates um, back when the field was much larger. Um, this is something that's commonly done in a lot of sectors where what you do is you send them a questionnaire saying, hey, what are your answers to these questions that are really important for us? For us, it was you know, outdoor recreation, saving public lands, equity and inclusion in the outdoors, and get them on the record so that then when that person is elected, or you know, whoever's elected, but they've hopefully all filled out the questionnaire, we can then hold them to and say, hey, you said this was really important to you, and we're happy to help you figure out what your presidential initiative should be to get that moving. Um, 
So that's a really common thing to do in many sectors. And, and so we kind of led that for the outdoor sector and got um, a whole bunch of organizations, I think 30 some or something to sign on to that and send it to all the candidates. So um, that's also part of that vote public lands, voter education. So all of that will be linked on the actions you can take is you know educating yourself and registering to vote. Um, and then we will um, also put up after, after National Trails Day, we'll be creating, um, we're hoping to create, this hasn't been publicly launched, so we're hoping to work on um, helping to connect people, kind of creating a database that will help connect people to volunteer events on their trails when, it's, when we're able to get back out there again. That's great, uh, Kate. Um, do you want to just talk maybe a little bit about the, um, the AHS's history like how it got started and it's like mission statement. Yeah. Um, how, well, it's interesting how it got started. So this was a long time ago um, because it's the same age as me. So it was a long time ago. <laughs> 1976, AHS and I were both born. Um, and it was started um, partly because of uh, all the interest um, that had been generated in completing around completing the Appalachian Trail and um, and in building all of these new um, scenic and historic trails, et cetera. So there was um, kind of a growing interest amongst the general public, I think, um, into hiking. It had been kind of seen before as something that only like a few kind of hardcore people did, carrying it all on their backpack, like backpacking and everything. And it was, a, I guess, I guess hiking was a little less popular then um, and started to become more popular and AHS was kind of born as a need to um, be the advocacy voice for hikers in Washington because there wasn't one. And we're still the only kind of advocacy voice for the hiking community in the nation. Um, our mission statement has actually evolved and uh, Severia was part of that on the board. Um, the board spent a couple years kind of having a lot of existential discussions about who AHS is and where we want to be and where we want to go. And so um, we changed our mission. And now, you know, we are empowering all to enjoy and protect and promote the hiking experience. So we're, like I said, we, we want to empower the hiking community in advocacy. And we want, to, they, we want that hiking community to be kind of everyone to be diverse and inclusive. You know, a lot of trails are still closed, but a lot of trails are beginning to reopen and there's a lot of people accessing the trails right now. And so even just, I mean, at the most basic level, making sure you pack in and pack out your trash, you know, because in remembering that even though trails are opening, resources are, resources are still not fully, like, you know, garbage cans and, you know, restrooms. Like there's just certain things that aren't necessarily, like people... We want to provide people the opportunity to get outside, but a lot of cities and states may not have their um, functioning, I can't even think of the word. <laughs> What's the, facilities, that's the word. Facilities. Sorry, facilities <laughs> still may not be open. Um, and so just, you know, um, even at the most basic level, just making sure you pack out your own trash, right? That you don't contribute to it or bringing a glove and being able to pick up trash, but just really remembering that that's where it starts. You know, there's trail work and like protecting trails is important, but at a basic level, it literally just means not leaving your garbage on the trail, making sure the cap on your water bottle gets put in your, you know, doesn't fall out of your pocket, stuff like that. I was, I was just going to add, I think that uh, there, there's a real challenge there because we have a lot of people, you know, people who 
are uh, outdoorists and who do this thing and live this thing. You know, they lo- live for hiking and backpacking and getting outside. They get all of this. And we're kind of connected into the community. And so we're paying attention to things like National Trails Day. And we, we understand the importance of advocacy and stewardship. But you have a lot of people, I think, who really just take it for granted. And they think, oh, there's a trail. Let's go take a hike. And they've, they're not paying attention. They're not looking at the websites. They're not watching social media for that. They just go, oh, let's go take a nice hike and go see a pretty waterfall. And um, so I think, I think the challenge to each of us and probably our listeners, because they're all people who really care about the outdoors, is that we have to take action to spread the word to those other people that, that aren't being reached, that aren't reaching out for that information. We need to reach out to them. Yeah, and I think, you know, I think it's it's about when new people, I always say, because I've heard before, but yeah, what, you know, if all these people get really excited about being outside and, you know, for, for me and for AHS, hiking doesn't necessarily mean that you go to a trail with waterfalls, right? It can, and that's great, but it can also mean you put on a pair of sneakers and you took a walk outside in your neighborhood. That's still part of our community. Um, and I've, I have definitely heard like, you know, people who are hiking the trails that go to the waterfalls and stuff. Well, if so many people, you know, and have been doing it for a long time, if so many people get so excited about this, they're going to get out there and it's going to get crowded and not everybody knows the leave no trace ethic and whatever. And I always say, look, the fact that you ever had that trail kind of to yourself with just like the other usual users, that was a privilege. And the thing is, we all need to give up some privilege and share space. So if that means that like we all need to kind of take turns <laughs> on that trail um, and share more space with more people, that's okay. Give up a little bit of that space for other folks to get excited about this because it's only positive. It's only positive when other folks are really excited about being outside because that means we have even more people in the fight to make sure that those places are protected, that we have those places, that people have access to those places. Um, and so, so I think it can only be positive and there's more kind of brains on the issue and, uh, and a more diverse range of backgrounds and thought processes and cultures brought to it. And that only makes the experience richer. And I think as you go, you just, you know, it is incumbent upon those of us who kind of know the leave no trace principles to help spread that because I don't think people willfully ignore it. I think it's just that not everybody knows it yet and wasn't lucky enough to grow up, you know, in Montana, like I did, where it's just like, you know that, because what do you do? You go outside, that's what there is to do. Um, and not everybody was lucky enough to grow up with that. So I think we just help educate folks. It's not a pointing and shaming, and it's not a, oh, all these people are gonna come out and, and make it, put it full of trash or something. No, it's more of a, let's just educate folks as we go. Yeah, and I would say, you know, on that note, a lot of people get inspired by the pictures that we post, by the adventures that we go on, right? And so they see that and they're like, oh, I want to do that. I want to try that. I want to go out there. And often we just post about the pictures or the experience or where we went. And we don't talk about the planning that went into that trip. And we don't talk about the education or the things that we learned to make sure that we were going to be able to do that trip safely. So um, I think there's sort of a great opportunity and responsibility for those of us who are hikers to not, not only share our passion for where we go, but the work we've done and you know the and the information that we have access to to help other and mentor other people. I know Jeff, you recently did a mentoring um, you know, 
a mentoring session on SoCal Hiker. Um, but even American Hiking Society, they have like a hiking, go hiking page. And on that page is a bunch of great resources of like planning your hike. What are the 10 essentials for hiking? Hiking etiquette, hiking with kids, cold weather hiking, you know, all these different things. And so I think it, for those of us who are, for those of you who are listening and for those of us who are on this podcast, I think we could probably all do a better job of making sure that we're sharing resources in addition to just the glory shots, right? And like sort of being like, oh, like, look how great I am on this beautiful hike standing on the top of this hill. For sure. Opportunity for us to also share and educate along the way. Absolutely. And you know what? I think also this is speaking as um, a mom of a toddler who's also try who has a partner who's also trying to work during, and I mean, we're very, very lucky we're both employed, but trying to work during a quarantine or whatever, and as a toddler at home, like, you know, and lives in suburban Maryland. I think, I think also we need to start showing pictures of like when we're just out on our local urban trail here or out, or out walking in our neighborhood, like that's adventurous too. You don't have to have these like epic shots that show like half dome behind you in order to be able for it to be an adventure that's really fun and worthwhile. So I think that's kind of part of that education too and getting people excited. Um, and then just as Severia said, telling people at the same time, like, this is what it takes to get out there and, and, and everything it takes to do the big adventures and the small adventures and that those small adventures are really great and totally worth sharing too. Well, you mentioned you're, you're from Montana, but how, how did you end up getting interested in hiking in general and, you know, decide to choose this as a, a career? Because I was lucky enough that I had, that I was raised by, I was practically raised in a campground. I, like, I was raised by parents that um, that's what we did all the time. Um, so, um, I just got really lucky being born into it. Um, and so then when I, when it was actually my husband who found out this job was open because he's on the Knowles listserv because he's constantly daydreaming about what he's going to do when he retires from the military and it often involves the outdoors. So he was like, Hey, this position opened at American hiking. And I'm like, what? That's a thing. And you can be executive director of it. <laughs> and I got... I was working in global development before this and I got really excited. I was like, oh my gosh, that sounds like a dream. Um, so I got to like, I get, and then, and then it was all like, oh yeah, I get to do what I love for a living. But no, no, no. I always joke, I sit in front of a computer so you can go hike. <laughs> um, so I hope everyone's enjoying it. I, I think that's a common theme that, that we have where we're like, because the three of us all, you know, it's like, if you do something hiking related, you think, oh, great, this means I got to go hiking. Generally, that thing that you do is hiking related takes all of your time and keeps you from hiking, which is a little bit of a bummer. But, uh, exactly. but, but, but certainly we very much appreciate that you're doing this so that we can hike, you know, now that my thing is long over, I can hike all I want. So right. of course, Jeff and Severia still have things that, that keep them from hiking. Right. <laughs> and Kate, really quick, you, you need to share what you did before this, because I think it's super cool because you were a geologist working on Mars. Yeah, not on Mars. On we Mars. have not sent yeah. people to Mars. I was going to say, what are the, what are the trails like on Mars? Yeah, <laughs> not a lot cold. of shade, right? They're very cold. Not much yeah. shade, but, you know, with the with the lower gravity, they're a lot easier. Um, no, uh, it's a bit dusty, though. Um, yeah. Worse than the Grand Canyon. Um, no, I was, I did start out my professional career as a research scientist working on some Mars missions. And that was awesome and really fun in a lot of ways. Um, and then the, um, the 08, 09 economy collapse happened. 
And that was right when I was looking for professorship positions. And I came really close at a couple of them, but they all canceled their searches. And when even universities like Harvard were canceling their search, I was like, oh God, I'm not gonna get a job anywhere. Um, and I was like, I'm not doing another postdoc. So um, I found out about this fellowship with the American Association for the Advancement of Science, AAAS, where they put PhD scientists into government to kind of infuse government with a little more science backing to its policy and to help scientists understand how policy, how the policy process works so that they can become better advocates when they go back to their academic life and aren't living in that typical academic tunnel. Um, and so I did that and I was supposed to work on climate change because I had been working on my research had to do with climate change on Mars actually. Um, and so I was supposed to work on actually, obviously earth climate change at the state department. And then two weeks before I started, they were like, yeah, just kidding. You're working on food security. And I was like, like mold on food and stuff. And they're like, no, no, that's food safety, <laughs> world hunger. You're working on hunger. Oh, okay. I could get into that. And so it was just random, like total accident that I ended up in it and loved it. I had a blast. Um, it's, it's tough because you're working on a really tough issue and it's a global issue and it's a hard nut to crack. Um, but in many ways, it actually ends up being really inspiring and really enriching, especially everybody uh, that you get to meet um, working on that and, and just how incredible people are and innovative people are um, when they, you know, growing up with so much more, so much less than we do. Um, and then I, so that was the state department. And then I moved over to Bono's nonprofit and I was working on all kinds of issues around poverty in Sub-Saharan Africa. And, uh, and then, like I said, found out this job was open and I was like, Ooh, that sounds really fun. And, um, you know, the current, uh, U.S. administration and several of the administrations that took over in Europe were kind of, which are all the kind of donor countries for global development, were getting less and less interested in working on global poverty. So I was like, well, <laughs> there's not a ton moving on this right now. I Don't quote me on that. I mean, you can put it on the recording. It's fine. But, you know, <laughs> I don't want my former colleagues to be like, what? We can't get anything done now? Um, but it just was, you know, there's less, it, to me, it was a little like, okay, I can't really move things the way I want to move them right now. But I could go over to AHS and really start moving stuff there. And now I'm having a great time here. So. It's a, cool. That is the most random and weird career path ever. But. <laughs> and I know I can probably speak for the board uh, when I say that Kate has been an, an amazing executive director, director, executive director, and she has really brought the organization moving in a really positive direction. Um, and so it's we're doing a lot of great work, and it's very exciting to see how American Hiking Society is sort of growing and evolving and really becoming an organization that is going to be able to support and reflect Future Hikers of America. She's done an awesome job. Great to you. <laughs> they can't see me getting really red. <laughs> <laughs> One kind of funny side note. Part of the reason this podcast is even here with us as hosts is uh, I met Severia through the American Hiking Society um, years ago for for trail days. Um, we had part. I had partnered the documentary I made years ago. We had partnered with with you guys. You guys were our nonprofit partner. We did a whole bunch of screenings and a whole bunch of great stuff. So they asked me to do videos of the of the um, so trail ambassadors, I believe they were called. Am I? Is, Severia, yeah, that was in one of my many and, one of my many AHS uh, incar yeah. incarnations. So, I was an ambassador. So, yeah. <laughs> so I shot. I sort of produced, and I didn't shoot all of them because they were obviously all over the country. But but uh, I did shoot Severia's. We went on a hike together, 
And then, you know, a few years later, we're looking for, Jeff and I are looking for a co-host. I'm like, oh, I know who would be perfect, Severia. So that's great. Funny, I also did one for, I think, the person who will be the second guest. And, but but uh, Liz Thomas, Thomas I also, she also did a video for you guys. So this might yeah. be an old AHS She's an ambassador. Kind of She's an AHS thing. ambassador. Yeah. 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 So that's awesome. Cool. Yeah. See, we bring everybody together. It's what I like yeah. to hear. So we talked about National Trails Day, but I don't think we said when is National Trails Day and where people can go to find out more about it and find out more about uh, American Hiking Society. June 6th. Um, and we'll in the show notes. So you can find information about National Trails Day and all the resources we were talking about at AmericanHiking.org. But we'll make sure that all of the links are in the show notes as well. Well, Kate, thank you so much for joining us today. This has been great. Super excited. Uh, National Trails Day is going to be right around the corner when this launches. So if you're listening to this, think about one resource or one cool tip that you can share with your friends um, who are now hikers, with your friends and families who are now exploring trails and getting outdoors. Um, maybe have a little call to action on this one. Share share a tip or share something you wish you had known or that you wish other people knew uh, when they hit the trails. Definitely. Yeah. Great. And don't Thanks, be Kate. afraid to share your small adventures, too. <laughs> you don't have to have epic shots. We love them all. <laughs> Close to home adventures. Great. So, Kate, where can people find the American Hiking Society? AmericanHiking.org. Great. And social media? Do you have a. Add American Hiking. Add American Hiking. Yeah. Facebook, Twitter, Instagram. Hello, everyone. We are so excited to have Liz Thomas with us today. She is a ultra through hiking machine, gear reviewing queen, and a master at waterfalls locally here in Southern California. So we are very excited to be having her join us today. Um, while we are all in Southern California, it is still the time at the recording of COVID-19. So we were extremely appropriately socially distanced and physical distance um, and enjoying each other's company virtually. So let's launch in. Welcome, Liz. Thank you so much for having me on, Tavaria. So let's start, um, I guess, let's go back to the beginning. <laughs> um, where? Uh, tell us a little bit about yourself and sort of how you started hiking and what sort of got you onto that first long trail. Yeah. Um, so I did not grow up in a hiking family or an outdoorsy family, but I had a first grade teacher who was really, really excited about getting kids outdoors. And um, I fell in love with it at a very young age. I had my third grade birthday party as a hiking birthday party. Um, and uh, it wasn't really until I got into college that I started spending time um, hiking more and more. And that's how I found out about the Pacific Crest Trail. Um and became really excited at this idea of doing very long trails. Was the PCT the first one you did? You know, actually the Appalachian Trail was the first. Uh, actually, the Tahoe Rim Trail, which is a 165-mile, um, that was my first long trail. And it was kind of my warm-up um, to see if I actually really, really liked long-distance hiking. And I loved it. So I was out just a few months after that on the Appalachian Trail. Um, yeah, and I mean, it's, it's, it's become my life, for sure. And you solo hike when you when you do the hikes, correct? I do. Um, you know, like one of the things that I, I really am big about is um, encouraging people, especially women, to go out and hike solo. Um, you know, I also go out with friends. You know, a lot of it's a little bit about timing and who wants to come and who has the skill set to come do something. Um, but I, I am a really big uh, proponent of solo hiking. 
maybe maybe that'll rub off rub off on me someday. <laughs> I'm like, no. <laughs> um, so I know. So you started with Appalachian Trail. You've done all of the major long trails here in the U.S., though, correct? I have the Appalachian, the Pacific, the Continental Divide are called the Triple Crown of hiking. But I've also done, I think, um, more than twenty other long distance wilderness trails. What is the least known long wilderness trail that you've done? Uh, probably the Mata Hay, which is in North Dakota. It's a little bit more than a hundred miles. So that actually leads to a good question. What's considered a long trail? Yeah, I was going to ask that same question. It's like, how long does it have to be before it's considered long? Yeah. You know, that's something that people love to debate around a campfire with a couple beers, um, discussing. Um, I go by the school of thought, uh, that a long trail is something that's long enough that you have to resupply along the way. Um, so it's not really possible or super convenient to carry all of your food for that whole length. Um, so like something like the Timberline Trail, which is 43 miles, uh, you know, like that, that is a long backpacking trip for sure. But, uh, you know, like you can do it as a, a couple days, but I wouldn't necessarily call it a long trail. Um, but something like the John Muir Trail, uh, 214, like you're going to want to resupply. So just out of curiosity, the Wonderland Trail, does that qualify as a long trail? <laughs> I ask this for selfish reasons because Jeff and I did that last year. So. Oh, nice. That's a beautiful trail and actually one of my favorite. You know, it's 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 kind of on the cusp. Um, you know, when I hiked it, I didn't need to resupply, but I wasn't going to say no for a chance of pizza. So... <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, we did. When we did it, we did it over 13 days. So uh, part of it comes uh, down to the duration, you know, like, yeah, there's a sure. lot of people who do it in three days. Yeah, the, the duration definitely does play a big part. So, you know, a lot of times when people are like, what's a long trail, it really depends on what you're trying to do, your own goals, your pace. Um, but really, I think, you know, like, how, how often do you want to resupply is, is the big question. When you're doing these long, so Liz, when you're doing these long trails, what, what is, what are you averaging sort of on a daily basis? And I know it, it changes based on trail and elevation, and all that kind of stuff, but sort of what is like a comfortable average for you on a day? Yeah, I would say, um, probably like around 30, 25, 30 is a comfortable day on, on good trail. Um, off trail stuff is obviously a lot slower, um, especially if there's like some scrambling or talus, but I would say on trail, that's, that's probably pretty average for me. And you, now you did, you had the, the FKT on the Appalachian trail at one time. Did you not? I did. Yeah. I had the no. women self-supported. That's, that's amazing. That's so cool. Um, but do you always, now are almost all of your, your long hikes, do you do like a, at a speed rate? Do you ever do slower ones? Have you take like taken your time on any of them or do you, are you usually hammered and doing 30 plus mile days when you, when you do these things? Yeah. I mean, a lot of it depends on who I'm hiking with too. So if mm -hmm. I'm with friends who maybe haven't been, I've gone on a backpacking trip before, you know, like we're going at their pace. I, I really feel like an important part of getting people in the outdoors is like not taking them on death marches when they're going on yeah. their first backpacking mm -hmm. trip. So yeah. I'm totally a lot more chill and, you know, like want people to have time to explore and look at flowers and hang out um, and chill. So, I, you know, it depends on what my goal for the trip is. Awesome. So obviously you spend a lot of time in these trails. You probably have your systems and your gear and everything super dialed in. Um, what is sort of that one essential piece of gear that you, or it's probably more than one, but what are some of like the essentials where you're like, nope, like trip's not happening without this piece of gear. Yeah. I'm a very big fan of the wind shirt. 
Uh, I know it's not on the 10 essentials list. Well, I guess it's technically a layer, but uh, I, I just find it so versatile. It doesn't take up much space. It Mine weighs about two ounces, but it just adds so much warmth. It cuts the chill if it's windy. Um, if it's cold out, it's amazing how much it keeps in the warmth, and yet it breathes really well, so I can move, um, not get sweaty wearing it. Nice. And so you have taken this uh, expertise in your gear life and you've transitioned it into something else. Tell us more about that. Yeah. So uh, about a year and a half ago, I started a gear review website called Treeline Review. And one of our main goals is uh, to increase the is to add visibility and inclusivity into the gear reviewing world because it really seemed like um, gear reviews were one of the last places where women or people of color were having difficulty breaking into um, because there's so much learning and training on how do you write about gear. So one of the things that we do differently is triangulating uh, our findings. So a lot of gear reviews will just test the product and be like, all right, here's what we think. But we think it's really important to also include what everyday customers are experiencing with the products. So we'll go through hundreds and sometimes thousands of customer reviews to include that as one of our data points. And then we also look at professional gear reviewers, the big magazines, the big media companies to see what they like and don't like about a particular piece of gear. So we've got this triangle of all these findings that we include to make it kind of like a one-stop shop as far as like the gear research process goes. So how do you choose like what you review and how long does a typical review take to gather all that information? Yeah, you know, we choose, uh, we, we try to choose things that are seasonally appropriate and the process um, usually takes sometimes up to four or five months of testing, especially we send off a lot of gear with through hikers. So if they're going to be putting in a thousand miles on a piece of gear, like they need to have a thousand miles worth of hiking time to test it. Uh, so we aim to try to get everything out right around the time when people are thinking, oh, it's starting to get warmer. I'm ready to get outside. I wonder what tent I should get. Are the manufacturers supplying you with this gear or are you guys buying it yourselves? Yeah, it's a little bit of a mix of both. Cool. Uh, and now, have you found that our gear, like kind of conversely, is our gear manufacturers listening to what you guys are saying? Like if, if you have complaints or, or recommendations for changing it, have, have they gone back and integrated those into, the, into their like next generations of the products? Yeah, you know, we've heard from some gear manufacturers anecdotally about that. Um, you know, because the gear design process is several years in advance and we've been around for about a year and a half, um, we haven't quite seen the products come out that have had those changes, but it has been really fun talking to them and hearing the feedback and, and um, of what our testers have found. Cool. It's, it seems like that's like kind of been missing for a long time, like having like a, a real sort of independent, you know, you know, larger scale gear reviewing place. I mean, I guess people just kind of do it, but I, I can't think of one that's not like a magazine or, or, you know, not that they don't do a good job of it, but, you know, one that isn't relying on the ad dollars from the, the products that they're reviewing or, and other such things to actually go and do it. That, that's really cool. That's, that's like a great service, I think. Yeah. And one of the things was that, you know, when I personally would go out to buy a piece of gear, I would probably spend like 12 hours putting together spreadsheets and reading a bunch of reviews. And I was, I, I keep thinking those are 12 hours I could have spent outdoors. <laughs> and, yeah, right. Uh, so we, we almost created this because we were doing this work ahead of time and we're like, this is going to be useful to someone. And it turned into tree line. It also seems like in this, in this day and age, like 
there's only two reviews. There's like five star reviews and one star reviews. There's like there's like very little nuance or like real things. It's either they love it or they just absolutely hate it. And anything in the middle, people just don't seem to like put any time or effort into reviewing, right? It's either great or bad and, and you kind of miss the, the the more sort of you know stuff that you want to know, the more you know, like medium sort of level of information that's actually kind of important for stuff like this. Yeah. And, you know, sometimes with the stuff that's kind of iffy, you know, where it's otherwise a great project, but there's one thing that's a little funky. Um, sometimes just getting a heads up before you buy it to be like, oh, make sure, you know, the sizing is really wonky on this. Make sure you go with the right size. These little warnings or, you know, like everything is great about the shoe except the insole. Get yourself a, another footbed and you'll be OK. You know, that sort of level of like, oh, I can just change something really quick and make it a five star, even though it's probably around a three or a four, uh, I think it's really helpful. I love the idea of sort of that triangulation too, because it feels like the reviews then become much more objective versus subjective, right? Because if it's just like one person saying, well, I love this or I didn't like it, it's just sort of, it's a, again, personal opinion. And I know reviewers are sort of, you know, think about the bigger picture. It's not just about them, but I love the fact that when you're bringing in all those different perspectives, it helps sort of level it out. Yeah. And, you know, one of the things that was important is really important to us is inclusivity um, and and trying to create a welcoming outdoors. Um, and, you know, so often gear reviews are written by people who've seen 20 or 50 of these and have used this item for a decade or two decades. And um, we really wanted to bring in the experience of people who have maybe never owned a headlamp before. And so, like, figuring out all the buttons is tricky. Um which and uh, you know, like I think having the expert and every day and pairing them together is such a powerful combination for actually finding something that'll work for your own level of expertise. Super curious, like how do you keep all your gear organized? <laughs> yeah, um, well, you can see some of it. You can see my ice axe and my my uh, mylar umbrellas hanging behind me. Um, yeah, I my my gear closet is brought by IKEA. Yeah. <laughs> I was going to ask about uh, the urban hiking that you've done because I had, uh, I think I had written something about the Inman 300, which is, I think, one of the first urban hikes that you may have done uh, way back. And um, how did you get sort of interested in doing urban hikes? And what other urban hikes have you done? And sort of what is, is you know, it, it seems like that hasn't really caught on quite yet. Where do you see it going? Yeah. Uh, so the Inman 300 was actually, it was my first urban hike. Uh, and the way that I found out about it is that Bob Inman's group, uh, urban hiking day, urban day hiking group themselves reached out to me, cold email on my blog and said, Hey, we put together this thing. Uh, you want to come hike it? Uh, and they had tried a couple other experienced kind of, you know, celebrity through hikers or whatever. And to see if anyone would come out and do this urban through hike. And everyone would, had kind of laughed in their face a little bit, like an urban through hike, an urban backpacking trip. What? And I was like, ah, you know, I'm not doing anything. It's winter in Colorado. Sure, I'll go out and do it. Uh, and I had a blast. It it totally opened my eyes to um, just all the levels of exploration that can happen on, at three miles per hour at hiking speed, um, regardless of where you are. So I am on to, I think, my 14th urban through hike my 14th um really long distance urban hiking trail uh i did new york city 225 miles uh all five boroughs last spring um i've hiked uh several beer hikes going to all the breweries in any given city 
done all the stairways in San Francisco, all the stairways in Seattle, uh, all the stairways in Portland. Actually, the Portland was a crowdsourced where I just had everyone who follows me on Instagram and Facebook tell me where are all the places to go in Portland. And then I connected them as a route. Um, I was part of the inaugural hiking crew to walk the loop in Tucson, which is the country's longest connected multi-purpose trail. Um, so it's been a really amazing way to see a bunch of different cities in the country and, and um, really kind of understand their flavor, their culture, eat their food, see their art, uh, and understand what it's like to be a local. Now, do you sleep in a tent when you do these? I was just going to ask the same thing. <laughs> Under yeah, a, uh, at an underpass. You know? <laughs> yeah, yeah. It, it depends on the route. Um, obviously, some cities have rules and regulations um, that don't allow camping. Um, and, but usually I try to plan my routes so that I'm staying with a friend or staying at a hostel um, each night. The idea is to stay at a different place each night, just like I would on a, a, a through hike or a backpacking trip. Um, so, you know, I pack up in the morning, pack up my sleeping pad in the mo- and my clothes in the morning, keep walking, and then end up at a totally new place every night. Um, but yeah, some, it really depends on the route as far as whether I'm camping out under the stars. Sounds a lot like, uh, you know, like Britain and, and Ireland, they have like the ways. Have you, have you done any of those? Have you done like any kind of international version of this? Yeah, I haven't done an international version of urban hiking, but I have done some international routes that have kind of more of that feel, like the West Highland Way and Scotland. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I kind of, I dirtbagged that where I was definitely sleeping out every night. I wasn't staying mm-hmm. in inns like, uh, like other people can on that route. Um, but yeah, it, it, I think there's a lot of that similarity as well. So on these urban hikes, are you, you know, there, there's not really an established, you know, route right? You're kind of defining it based on what you're interested in or what the needs are. Or, um, in some cases, there may be sort of a, a loop or something like the one in Tucson. But in other cases, it's sort of, you know, you, de- you design your own adventure, right? Yeah. Uh, so with the Inman 300, that, that's one of the big exceptions as far as there's, there's, I mean, there's no markings on the ground, but so many people have turned it into this urban hiking pilgrimage that there's a, there's a guidebook online. There's a route that most people take. It's broken into convenient sections, so you can take a bus to one end and a bus to the other end. Um, but the other ones, yeah, it's it's uh, you know the Wild West as far as where I want to go and putting together a route that I think will be fun. Have you shared those routes with anybody else to like if if they're interested in going and exploring the five boroughs in New York City? You know, would there be a way to find that you know like a GPS track or something? <laughs> Yeah, you know, um, some of my routes are online, some of them aren't online. Um, so yeah, it just depends on the route. And a lot of times too, uh, you know, like with the brewery hike in Denver, some of the breweries have closed since I did that hike. So everything, I mean, the urban landscape is always changing in a way that uh, is much more, in some ways is much more dynamic than, than the natural landscape. And in some ways, uh, you know, it's very much so like the natural landscape that's always changing. Um, I got a question about you know, like when your planning process for these adventures, whether it's an urban hike or a long trail, how far out do you start planning? Are you looking at, you know, one year, two years, three years, or are you talking months? And then how much flexibility do you have sort of in between those? Yeah, I would say it really depends on where I'm going. So if it's a place that requires permits, for example, like a trip in the Sierra is, is going to be months, um, probably like a year in advance to, to get permits and time set aside for that. Um, other hikes, 
you know, some of it, it depends with an urban hike too, is if I'm trying to, um, highlight some local flavor, um, you know, I'm going to want to reach out to, um, you know, the office of tourism or reach out to, uh, the New York hike that I did, I did with the trust for public land and I was highlighting projects they had done. So we were working on that, uh, like seven months in advance. Um, I was working on, I am working on a, a San Antonio, uh, urban hike, and that one will be more than a year putting together the route because um, there's so many different things we want to highlight and players we want to involve and people who want to join me along the way. Uh, so it really depends on the trip. Oh, cool. And do you have uh, sort of the spontaneous, hey, I'm not doing anything this weekend. Let's go for a hike. Oh, yeah. So <laughs> certainly, yeah. <laughs> Your calendar is not that full. <laughs> I was going to say, what's the most mileage you've done in one calendar year? Huh, that's a really good question. I haven't I haven't thought about things in terms of one one calendar year before. Um probably the year I hiked the CDT was pretty up there. Um which was probably around a 3000 mile year, maybe a little bit more. Just a practical question, you know. I think a lot of people always wonder like like what do you have like do you do work when you're not on the trail? Do you have like a standard sort of career, like what allows you to have just the time to go out and do all these kind of epic adventures and these long hikes? Yeah, that's a really good question. So my answer for for that has evolved over time. Um, I, for many years, worked as an independent contractor doing consulting jobs. And that that was, um, you know, I would take the contract uh, when during the winter and the spring. And then as we got closer and closer to when it's hiking time, I would, you know, be like, oh, I can't take that one. and then starting tree line has definitely, I thought that it would give me more freedom to get out mm-hmm. and, uh, like any business owner has <laughs> learned that that is not how it goes. Um, and then I also speak around the country and, um, especially to college outdoor clubs. Um, and that, that helps quite a bit as well as, um, writing books, uh, which, which have some income, <laughs> in the, although anyone who's ever written a book can say that it's not the most lucrative thing in the world. Um, so, so I kind of have a, a couple of different projects going on at any given time that make it possible. And Liz, I know um, a, a few years ago you came out with a really popular one called Long Trails, and it was mastering the art of the through hike. Um, but and that was all about through hiking, obviously. What is the book? But you just came out with a new guidebook, correct? I did. Tell us about that. So that book is uh, Hiking Waterfalls in Southern California. And that includes um, about 82 waterfalls uh, all across the Southern California region. Some of them really well-known, famous waterfalls, some of them a little more obscure. Uh, and one of the reasons I wanted to do that is because there's so many great hiking places in Southern California. And I wanted I, I wanted to, to see some of these ones that I'd always heard about that, you know, sometimes it's just hard to, like, get myself to out the door to go explore a new place when there's so many great places that I know really well. Um, and, and it was a blast. It, it was so cool to learn about these places and, um, kind of like, you know, get lost uh, and have to write about it. How did you define Southern California? That's a good question. So there was, um, my publisher also had a Northern California book that came out before. So I took Southern California to mean anything that the Northern California writer (laughs) didn't cover. Mm -hmm. Uh, 
um, which is great. So I got to include some Southern Sierra things. Um, I went up towards Mammoth, which was has Rainbow Falls, which is amazing. Uh, so yeah, I had a lot, I, I had a lot of fun. It was a lot of driving though, getting <laughs> getting all over the Southern California region. So now, not all of our listeners obviously are in Southern California, but actually all of us are. So quite selfishly, I'm going to ask you to like just can you tell us a couple of your your favorite waterfalls in the Southern California area? Yeah. Oh. Um. Let's see. So. Oh, that yeah, that that's a good question. So Big Falls over um, in in the Valley of the Falls by San Gorgonio, uh, really really incredible. Um, it was a lot of fun. Heart Falls kind of uh, out east as well. Uh, family friendly hike, really cool rock formations. Um, yeah, some of the ones in Santa Barbara were really great. Uh, Tangerine Falls was was really really cool, and um, especially all the trail work that the crews have done since the landslides there was was so empowering, really beautiful to see. Um, Rainbow Falls, any of the Sierra ones are going to yeah. be killer, but Rainbow Falls and um, and Mammoth uh, and Devil's Post Pile, incredible. Yeah, Rainbow is pretty 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 uh, breathtaking. It's pretty it's pretty amazing. Right, and you know Darwin Falls and Death Valley, like. Can't that that's that's incredible as well. So hiking for you, Liz, has become you know uh, it's your life, right? It's your career as well as your love. It sounds like. Um, what do you, would you say? I mean, what was the tipping point? What sort of um, how did that happen? How did that evolve? I mean, you talked about how you started, you know, really getting into hiking when you were in college. But I mean, when did it become something like, this is it, this is my life? Yeah, I would say it crept up very slowly. (laughs) Uh, And, you know, it was a sort of thing where I was doing stuff that was not really related at all um, professionally and doing writing about hiking on the side, going for hikes on the side. And slowly more and more as I wrote about hiking and just did hiking for fun, um, it started becoming more and more professional to the point where I felt like I didn't have to be um, doing the consulting job I was doing. And, you know, it was a huge pay cut, but, uh, you know, like I, I get to spend all my time thinking and working and, and doing things related to hiking. That's so cool. Now, do you have advice for, say, other people that, that you know, might want to quit the rat race and try to do the same? Yeah, um, I would definitely say, you know, like it takes a skill set to, to be a hustler. And if you're, going to make hiking your life. There's definitely like different projects that you always have, you know, you're always juggling them. And, um, you know, sometimes ironically juggling all these projects might get in the way of actual, actually hiking. Um, but I think, you know, starting small, um, volunteering to write for things. Um, I, that, that was a great way for me to get into it. Yeah, I can, I feel that pain of when you're working really hard to help other people get outdoors, the first thing that goes is you actually getting outdoors and you're like, no, no, wait, but I'm taking my passion to share it. And I I hear that pain. I think we all do on some level. (laughs) Yeah, for sure. So Liz, uh, Jason and I have talked about, we've, we've kind of, um, flirted with the idea of, of through hiking. Yeah, we've threatened to, uh, actively threatened. To thru-hike the PCT in 2022. So we, we both have some milestones. I'm going to be uh, uh, leveling up to level 60, and he's going to be level 50. And uh, <laughs> so what advice would you give? You know, we've got a year and a half, roughly, from when we're recording this to kind of get ready for that. 
Yeah, well, I mean, the advantage both of you have is that you're both very avid hikers. So a lot of the skills about what do I do with blisters and how do I pack food and all that, you've already got that down pat. Um, I would I would advise reading my book. But, you know, like some of the things that um, that I think people find really challenging is even if they're they're avid day hikers or avid backpackers is, is the, the grind of being on your feet all day, every day. Um, because that does, that, that does a number on your body that, um, you know, like if I go for a, a very, very challenging hike and then, um, I I'm working for five days, my body has time to recover. Whereas on a through hike, you wake up and you have to do it again. So I think part of it is mentally adjusting like, okay, I'm only going to give 80% or I'm only going to give 60% of what I, I normally would do on a day hike. Um, getting your mind ready for that. And then the other thing too is that I would suggest is, you know, if it rains, which I think it's supposed to rain the next couple of days, um, you know, go out and hike in the rain and get used to hiking in these really, really uncomfortable situations. Because that's yeah, on a through hike, you don't you don't get the choice of being like, ah, eh, I'm not going out today. Um, you you have to keep walking that day, even if it's raining or snowing or windy or cold. Um, and that that's a huge was a huge mental adjustment for me coming from a, a day hiking background um, where I could decide what days I wanted to go out. Jeff and I got some good practice on that in our last hike together a couple weeks ago. So, <laughs> in the pouring, freezing, not quite snow. Uh, rain. So, so cool. That's good to know. We see Jeff. That was, we got something out of that other than cold and wet and very wet. Yeah. 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 It's so funny. What I took away was, wait, it's going to rain. Oh no. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) I clearly haven't been looking at the weather. No. We have that luxury in Southern California. Yeah. Of course, when we air this in July or June, (laughs) it's probably not going to rain next week. So, so. Spoiler alert to all of our listeners. Yes, it's probably not going to rain next week in June in L.A. <laughs> no, but I think that's actually that's great advice because it's something I wouldn't have thought about because because we are in Southern California, it's super easy to be like, oh, well, it's only going to rain for a day or two. Like, I just don't need to hike. Like, I just don't, you know, it's not, you know, it's just a day or two of training. Um, there's other options. So that's a, I really like that advice, actually. Um, when you're on these long, long through hikes, do you ever take a, you know, you take a zero day or a, or a couple days? Or have you ever like unplugged from the trail a little bit and kind of catch up with other things like emails and, you know, other other life as it continues to march on? Oh, yeah, that is so, so essential. Um, I think, you know, even if, if you have quit your job and, uh, and don't want to catch up with email at all, taking a break every, at least every week, um, taking a day off. It's so important for your body to heal up, to, to, to get back to something resembling your full health. Um, so yeah, zero days are important. Um, you know, like a lot of people will do their blogs. Some people will check in with their family. Some people will check in with work. Uh, but yeah, zero days are so important. What kind of shoes do you wear when you're through hiking? I use trail runners, um, like a lot of through hikers. So lightweight mesh shoes, um, dries quickly, lets out all that sweaty feet, uh, (laughs) pretty quickly. And how many pairs do you go through on one of like on the, something like the PCT or the AT? Yeah. Um, I go through shoes about every 400 to 600 miles. Uh, so yeah, on a 2,600 mile hike, start, it starts adding up. One of the most most expensive parts of through hiking, your shoes. The shoes, yeah, yeah, and they wear out. No, yeah, for our, no, audience, you... for our, our audience who can't see, it's cute because both Jeff and Jason were like, "Oh, hmm." 
I was like, oh. Yeah. <laughs> We're not no, going to follow up on that because I've of that. I've been to the Next. list. Shoes times five. Check. Yeah. Do you buy the shoes before you do the trail and then mail them like in... You know, and then mail them ahead or, like, you know, cash them that way? Or do you buy them while you're hiking? Like, you know, I know a lot of town, you pass through towns and all these where you could probably buy a new pair of shoes, but they might not have the ones you want, right? So do you, like, buy, like, five pairs of shoes and then just kind of plan them out based on mileage? Or is it like, I need these, and then you have someone send them to you? So I buy them ahead of time and have them sent to me, but that's a little bit because I've figured out the shoes that work for me, and I've also... So here's one of the crazy things about through hiking is, is after a couple months, just because you've been on your feet for so long, it's kind of like being a pregnant lady, your feet expand, they get bigger. And sometimes they never go back to their previous size. Hmm. Uh, like I have shoes that I owned prior to becoming a through hiker that like I can never wear anymore. I should probably just get rid of them. Um, cause my feet have permanently increased in size. Um, so you never really know how your body's going to react on that first through hike. Um, so I would advise not pre-buying all your shoes ahead of time because you're going to learn a lot more about your feet than you ever thought you would know when you're going on, on one of these trips. Um, and, you know, the shoes that maybe were super trusty that you've used for a long time, maybe they're not going to work for you anymore. Or maybe your feet are going to grow two sizes and, uh, you know, you would have bought like five pairs of two small shoes now. Um, so that, that would be my advice. I already wear size 13, so that's terrifying for me. Because, like, I, <laughs> it's hard enough to find 13s. If, if I go to, like, 15, I'm doomed. I'm just going to have to, like, wrap my feet in, like, gauze or something and walk around like that. Ooh, yeah, that's tough. And, you know, a lot of times, too, if you do find a if, – if you have specialty sizes of feet, mm-hmm. um, when you're on a through hike, you can call your family and say, hey, can you pick up a pair of my size 15 and mail them to me? Yeah. Is there a snack or a food item that you can eat through the entire trail? So you like it at the beginning and you like it at the end and you like it anytime in between. Yeah, I am a big food. I've gotten tired of so many things. As you can yeah. <laughs> uh, but I, I never get tired of cheese. Cheese is, cheese is great. All right. Awesome. We did, we did that, uh, when we did the Wonderland Trail, we had a, a, a third person on our team, Derek Loringer, and he brought along some really nice cheese and share, shared that with us, you know, on a couple times along the way. And it was, it was just, it was so, such a treat, you know, because you're eating all this stuff that you've kind of rehydrated and, you know, it's good. I mean, when you're, when you're hungry, anything tastes good, but you get something like that that's like nice cheese. Oh, it's just the best. It really is. Have you ever had uh, uh, experienced trail magic where you, you know, at just the right time, you somebody's, you know, shared something that really made your day? And what was that? Oh, yeah. Yeah. Um, so the first trail magic I ever had was, was um, a couple, about a week into the Appalachian Trail. This person had hiked in to this random area that, that I, don't, I don't know how they got there. And it was freezing rain. And they were doing a burger station. <laughs> and it was uh, someone who had hiked the year before who said, eh, well, you know, it was a cold, kind of miserable day. And I thought any hiker who was going to be out here at this time of day, in this kind of weather would really appreciate this. And it was such a morale booster. Um, and, and so many times I, I've had trail magic on, on days where I wouldn't quite say I was thinking about quitting. But, man, I was having a bummer of a day that just, you know, talking to other people, 
getting some food just, just really improves the mood. So now I have to ask you the question that I know all Triple Crown people hate. Which one of the three is your favorite? Oh man, yeah, yeah. You're you're making us choose between our favorites. Uh, you know, and that's hard too because they all um, all sir, do do such different things for for my heart. You know, I love. I think living in Southern California, um, that sort of eastern deciduous green forest kind of blows my mind every time I see it to see so many things growing and surviving uh, naturally without irrigation. Um, so I, I love the AT like only a West Coaster could, as I say. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, like some of the wild areas on the CDT are incredible. And, you know, the PCT, it's, it's so classic. It, it, it's, it's incredible how it passes so many highlights on the West Coast. So it's, it's really hard for me to say. You know, depending on the day and what I want the most in the world at the time, um, you know, right now we're, we're all stay at home. So the solitude of the CDTs is not what I'm missing. I mean, I'm missing the landscapes. Um, but, uh, you know, it, it really depends on what, what I want at any given time. Are you running for office? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Where the three trails are voting for me. Yeah. yeah. Um, so you have a trail name, Snorkel. Is there an origin story behind it? Like any any good trail name? Oh, yeah. So any good trail name, you know, you get because you've either done something stupid or you're, you've said something stupid. And it's a way for people to make fun of you and remember what to call you based on your most embarrassing moment. Uh, so um, the first time I hiked the IT, I actually started without a sleeping bag um, and, because I thought the South was going to be warm. Um <laughs> Quickly learned, luckily the AT, uh, about 30 miles in, literally is routed through a gear store. Um, I'm sure it does great business from lots of prepared people. So I I, uh, bought a brand new, very, very nice, expensive sleeping bag that they told me would last 10 years. About 500 miles in, I see the same sleeping bag at another gear store and say, what gives? Mine's all deflated and sad. Yours is fluffy. They told me it would last 10 years. And they said, oh, well, did you get it wet? I said, no, been very protective of it. They said, well, are you sticking your head in your sleeping bag? And I was like, yeah, I got to keep my face warm. They said, oh, well, you know, this is a humid environment. Your breath is condensing the down. You need a snorkel to step, stick up the top. So that, that's how I became snorkel. Got it. <laughs> Bought a snorkel on a through hike. But, uh, mm-hmm. you know, just this image of a snorkel sticking up out of a sleeping bag is, was so funny. Every, every, we just can't stop laughing. <laughs> Love it. Do you still have that bag? I do still have that bag. Yeah. <laughs> I still use it. Awesome. Well, nice. Then it's a good, good purchase then. It was a great purchase. Uh, I just learned not to keep my head in my sleeping bag. I use a ball of cloth instead. <laughs> so here's a question. If you, for the three, um, for the triple crown trails, the big three, uh, what would you say if you could use like one word or two words to describe the difference between each one? How do you describe them? Yeah, uh, I'll have to give you a little more than one or two. Okay. I, uh, so the AT, uh, straight up and down, uh, in forest. Yeah, straight up and down in forest. Um, the PCT, uh, grand views, well-maintained. And CDT, so... You know, just just as a warning, I hiked the CDT 10 years ago, which is a lot has changed on that trail. They've signed it now. When I hiked it, it was, you know, wild, solitude, uh, big, big open solitude. Um, And a lot more people are hiking it these days than when I did. Um, There's 
actual trail and there was like bushwhacking and crazy navigation when I did it, you know, trails that would just stop. <laughs> you'd be hiking on a good trail and they would just stop. Um, and you'd go off that way into the bushes. Um, and, and that, that has changed in the last 10 years when they've done a, a tremendous amount of work, but yeah, that, that's what I would say are the, the three differences. Oh, and CDT grizzlies. I, I would add that in there too. Wild it and does. grizzly. <laughs> yeah. Wild solitude and grizzly. I don't know how I feel about solitude. Yeah. Solitude and grizzlies. I, you know, there's more people hiking the, the CDT these days, but when I hiked it, I hiked it southbound. I didn't see anyone from the Wyoming border all the way to Mexico. <gasps> Whoa. Wow. You know, I would when I'd go into town to get food, yeah. but yeah, you know, it, wow. it, 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 it's a lot of alone time. And, and I, I can, can imagine at that time, time people probably looked at you like, who are you and where did you come from? Like <laughs> yeah. when you went into town, like what, <laughs> like, like what, what are you doing? doing? <laughs> yeah. Yeah, totally. That is crazy. Um, so when this comes out, it's, you know, going to be in the middle of through hike season and there's going to be a lot of people who had planned big, their big hikes for this year that aren't on the trail um, due to the coronavirus, what advice do you have for them? What's it, you know, if you could, if you could, if you could give them a comforting word of advice, what would you, uh, maybe what would you do to lift their spirits? You know, so one of the things that I've gotten into recently is section hiking. So not doing all 2,600 miles of the PCT, um, but maybe doing a thousand miles every season. And I know that a lot of people have put their lives on hold to go on the trail and they might not have the six months or the five months they had planned to do a full through hike. And in many ways I've found section hiking to actually, I mean, I feel like through hikers are going to throw rotten tomatoes at me, but I actually think it's more fun um, to be able to time um, the season that I'm going to see certain areas so that it's the wildflowers are out or the bugs are gone um, to go through the Sierra and not having to worry that I'm going to uh, fall off an icy cliff is, you know, pretty great. Um, and uh, I would say, you know, like in, embrace the possibilities of section hiking because it's, it's such an incredible way to experience a long trail. Awesome. I like that. Yeah. That's really good advice. And the permits are easier to get <laughs> for those hiking permitted trails. All right, Liz. So where can people find your books and your website and all that kind of stuff? Yeah, my website is eathomas.com. Um, those are my initials. And you can also get in touch with me at uh, on Facebook at Liz Thomas Hiking and Instagram at Liz Thomas Hiking. Um, and my book, Long Trails, Mastering the Art of the Thru-Hike, is in bookstores all across the country. I know it's at some REIs. Um, a lot of independent gear stores also sell it. Um, and of course the big players, Amazon borders, that sort of thing. And how would people find uh, your gear reviews in Treeline? Yeah. So Treeline review is www.treelinereview.com. Um, you can also find us on Instagram and Facebook at Treeline review, all lowercase, no spaces. Well, that's going to do it for us. Please make sure to subscribe to us wherever you get your podcasts and follow us on social media on Instagram at almost there underscore AP or the Almost There Adventure Podcast on Facebook. You can find Severia at Adventure Us Women, that's Adventure US Women, Jeff at The SoCal Hiker, or me at The Muir Project. Our title track, Almost There, is performed by Opus Orange and is provided courtesy of Emoto. On our next episode, we talk to trail runner and race coordinator RJ Soria. Stay safe out there, and as always, thanks for listening.